Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 198 with my guest, Samantha C. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website portfolio and online store for a free trial and 10% off visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code mental at checkout squarespace a better web starts with your website i'm paul gilmartin this is the mental illness happy hour honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The uh, website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out. Um, you can post in the forum. You can read blogs. You can uh, take surveys uh, that describe your inner life and your life and stuff that's happened to you. And you can also read... Um, other people's responses to uh, the surveys, you can scroll through. There's thousands and thousands of responses there that uh, are fascinating. And those of you that listen to the show regularly um, know how uh, how fascinating they are because I read them on the uh, on the show. Bless you, Ivy. Is the microphone too loud? I can't tell if the microphone. I'm I'm still. Uh, let me turn it down just a little bit. I'm kind of uh, transitioning between my old equipment and my new equipment and uh, very, very concerned that the uh, sound quality is not going to be up to snuff. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by uh, Ashley, and she writes about her anxiety. Um, the outside world is too big, but my house is too small about her bulimia. I'm always hopeful that this time I will feel better afterwards, but I never do. About her anorexia, the only kind of empty that makes me feel full. 
that one is profound, about her uh, trichotillomania. If I pull out the right hair, I will be calmer and happier. And about being a sex crime victim, she writes, I know it's not my fault, but I still hate myself for it. Those are... Those are um, profound. Thank you, Ashley. This is filled out by uh, Ninja Panda, and uh, she is transgender, uh, and she writes about her depression, trapped in the currents of a sea of darkness, about her anxiety, everything is wrong because of me, Um, about her bulimia, food is only for those that earn it. Uh, about her body dysmorphic disorder, trapped in a prison only I can see, and about cutting. Uh, She writes, each cut makes the world momentarily stop. Uh, This is uh, from a different Ashley, and uh, she writes about her love addiction. Uh, Love addiction is like asking my dad to love me and take care of me all over again. Uh, codependency. Here, let me give you everything so that I know you will never leave me like my dad left me. Oh shit, that isn't love. My bad. Uh, snapshot from her life. My mom deciding to turn me into her mommy when I was 13 and pitting my brother and I against my dad when he would leave on a business trip. Daddy's, daddy's, gone. daddy's gone, she exclaims as she would clap and encourage us to celebrate when we were slowly being groomed into hating a man my mother resented. Now all my attempts at relationships are fraught with daddy issues or I pick the emotional abusers with mommy issues. Uh, This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Mr. Wind-Up Bird and about his depression he writes, I don't know what kind of depression I've got. I was diagnosed with it years ago after an incident but fled treatment. It feels like always questioning every undistracted moment of every day what's wrong with me and what the fuck is my excuse and why can't i just get my shit together that may be one of the best descriptions of the frustration of depression um about his anxiety i don't i I don't belong here and unless i make myself small and stay quiet i'll be exposed and humiliated for what i really am weak and incompetent Uh, about being a sex crime victim. He writes, I only remember the aftermath and that only vaguely. What I told my aunt, family court, and how it brutalized my mother. So sometimes I get this, so sometimes I get this sick, soul-crushing feeling that it's a fiction I invented to escape taking responsibility for my bad choices. Um... He writes a snapshot from his life. I still live with my mom because I'm a fucking walking joke of a human being. But anywho, she has depression and anxiety and had a much harder childhood than the one she gave me. And as I've gotten older, she's gotten more and more cynical because I love her and because I'm scared of how much of that is my fault. I've taken it upon myself to try to provide a more positive perspective, but my attempts to brighten things up for her ring increasingly hollow in my own ears. I don't even believe my own bullshit and haven't for a long time. I'm going through the motions because I'm too scared to do anything else. My first thought when I read this was save yourself. Save, get out of the house and save yourself. If you can afford to move out, your mom, um, your mom's sickness, if you keep trying to fix her and improve her mood, it is going to surely drag you down. Um, you are a sex crime victim. Go get help for that. Go get help for that. That is the most pressing thing from what I've read in in this survey that, that you've written. Your mom is an adult and she can handle herself. And if she wants to be sad, 
let her fucking be sad. You can feel bad for her, but it is not your job to fix her. Um, this is from the body shame survey, and this was filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Mom of Many. And she writes, I like the way I am shaped. I have hips and a butt. I don't like the way I look naked after having had bariatric surgery. I have loose skin that falls in weird directions when I lay down. When I wave goodbye, I have a flap of skin that is still saying goodbye after the person has left. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. I cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got into therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how are you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with Sam, uh, Sam C., and uh, she wants to to withhold her her last name so that she can speak more more freely. Um, you are how old are you? Thirty six. Thirty six. Um, you are. I asked you a couple of nights ago. I said, "How do you like to 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 be referred to? Is is little person an an okay term?" Um, and you said that that was that was okay. Is that how you preferred? Um. I'm actually pretty flexible. Like medically, we're little people could also be called dwarfs or short statured. Short statured is really kind of the more clinical way, but no one ever says that. So, um, little people is kind of like the pop culture you see, like the uh, the TV show that's been out for like ten years now, was Little People, Big World, and the Little Couple. Um, so I'm totally fine with that. And in fact, we go by LP to kind of make it more hip. Um, and then we also call average size people a AP, but then some people didn't like that, so now that's AH, their average height. Okay. But anyway, just to yeah. get you in our vernacular. Thanks. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the ways that I've kind of expanded my knowledge of segments of society that you don't typically hear from is the transgender community. And um, there's so many terms that I was unfamiliar with and um, things about their lives that... Um, I'd, I knew nothing about, so I always love an opportunity to kind of um, learn more about uh, about people whose lives are different than what I've experienced. Um, what are terms that you recoil from that are hurtful or you just don't like? Um, well... The obvious word that comes to mind is midget, which is a word that the little people community has, I would say for the good last 10, 20 years, try to take back and own and get 
teach the media that it's an inappropriate word to use. But, you know, the unfortunate fact about that word is it actually was used to call little people at a certain time because, um, like P.T. Barnum and all those circus, they, circus companies, they used to call them like midgets. And actually, um, I used to be involved in the little people organization, Little People of America for 20 years. And they actually started out, I don't know where they actually called midgets of America, but at the time, midgets were still being freely used and Billy Barty was the one that started the group and so um, even then there were coined midgets but since then that's obviously became less politically correct it's actually not politically correct Um, but unfortunately just because of what kids learn from school at a young age like you know I growing up kids would often taunt and say midget or shorty or fatty or something not understanding the proportions Um, so those are very commonly way used ways how little people are bullied and is it um genetic is it is it a genetic thing that is uh passed on or is it just random uh Uh, for well it's both um for most little people that are born to average height parents which is by far the majority um they usually it happens because of a gene mutation um, there's 200 at least different types of dwarves out there, uh, people that have been diagnosed with dwarfism. There's even some that are out there that doctors have no idea what they are. Um, and it usually happens right at um, inception. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, but The when- blowing of the load. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the technical term for it. When love happens. Yeah. And so, um, but then when there's two little people that come together... And it could be different whether they have, like, a different dwarfism type or if they have the same type that I do. Like, I have the most common one. It's called a chondroplasia. How do you, how do you spell that? I always like, for me, for me to remember something, uh, I have to picture the, how the word is spelled. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I think it's A-C-H-O-N-D-R-O-P-L-A-S-P-L-A-S-I-A. Yeah, I think that's my only that's attempt at, at spelling B. <laughs> okay. And it's pronounced how? A chondroplasia. Okay. Um, and that's the most common one. It's usually um, that dwarfism it affects the offspring by the length of the limbs. So the arms and the legs will be significantly shorter than the rest of the body. But the torso will usually be normal or average size, and the head, I don't know why, but the heads tend to be a little bit larger than average. Um, than an average person or an average person with dwarfism? An average size person. Okay. And so, and that's the most common type that you'll see, like, on TV, actually. Um Anyway, where am I getting with that? Oh, so when two different little people get together... There, there could be like, if they have a dominant gene, there's like a 50% chance the kid will be dominant, will be a little person. And then there's a 25% chance the kid will be average height. And then, uh, there's a 25% chance the kid will have double dominancy, which often that infant will, unfortunately, uh, because the double dominancy will often affect it in so many different ways, will often pass on probably after a few days of the birth. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that's sad. Uh, does that ever factor in your in your thoughts about having a family? Um, yeah, definitely. I uh, it's it's sad because 
I, <laughs> well, I, I guess at first off, I'm not with someone now, so I, I guess that I probably shouldn't even be thinking that far. But even with an average sized person, there's still a 50, like, there will be a 50-50 chance that my offspring will be little. And medically, it's one thing to think about because there's always issues as a little person have to deal with, like, um, whether they're good, they, we have like back problems and sometimes leg problems, they might need to have surgery later on. Um, some little people have, like me, have had very little surgeries. I've only had two, but um, some have had twenty or more, wow. depending how severe their case is. And um, the other aspect is socially. You know, their life is going to be affected for the rest. You know, since as a kid till they go on, um, whether or not they could handle it, you know, being in school, being with strangers, um, professionally, it, being a little person is a tough life. I'm not going to lie. But, um, at the same time, procreating, I mean, there's little people out there who are having children. Um, there's a saying about having diversity in life and having different people on this planet. So there's always that argument as well. If you knew a hundred percent that your offspring would be a little person, would you still have a uh, a baby? It's so hard to say. <laughs> um, you can say, I don't know. I don't know. You know, okay, I, I guess I'll say this on the air. Um, it wasn't until this last year when I met somebody that, and he's average size, actually. He's actually a very tall average size person. He's over six feet. And, um, I, you could say that I fell in love with him and that I found him to be just an extremely spiritual and amazing man that I saw when I saw, when, you know, we've been getting to know each other and that I really liked him. I was like, you know, he's like the first man I would love to have a child with, little or not. What'd that feel like? It felt, I mean, it felt awesome when I first, like, it, it was a little silly of me, but I was kind of like, Oh my gosh, he has such beautiful eyes. I would want my children to have his eyes. I never had those thoughts before. Silly because you felt like you were putting the cart before the horse? Like you were extrapolating into the future a little too early in your relationship? Um, yes, but then at the same token, I've never had those thoughts for anybody else either. So I think that actually was a sign of healthiness on my another part of it because I don't think I've been emotionally available or had met the person who had really struck me to be like, hey, this is someone who's really of great quality, who I really would like to spend a lot of time with. Were your uh, parents little people or average height? They're average height. And what do you remember, if anything, as a child of them talking to you about um, what was what was going on with you and what may be in your future or your feelings about how you were treated or seen by other people to kind of walk me walk me through that if there's been an evolution or an arc oh that's a loaded question um why is that (laughs) well my parents they did the best they could and i only could say that in my current stage of where i'm at in life and recovery um, they did the best they could in terms of trying to raise me and feed me and support me that way. In terms of understanding me as a little person, they understood some. They were really 
unable to have empathy for most of it, sadly to say. That's, that's heartbreaking. Well, you know, that's why I go to support groups. <laughs> I mean, it never fails to amaze me how parents, or people really, even beyond parents, will abandon someone they love when they need them the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the, and obviously it took quite a bit of inventory work on my part to understand this, um, were, was their transference of their shame onto me. Um, shame about just stuff in their lives? It's stuff in their lives, but also just about them in general. And I think it it took me this year in my current fellowship to understand it wasn't really much about me. Um, as, as difficult or weird that sounds, um, because, you know, they raised me, it was all about me, right? Cause, uh, um, cause yeah, the, everything that happens to me has to be my fault, cause that's how we're, we learn as addicts. But, um, I did figure out that my, both my folks came from families that were very harsh to them, that expected them to overexcel, that over expected them to be perfect. And so this, they, when they came to America, they, my parents are originally from Taiwan. They wanted the perfect children. They wanted the perfect life. And when things didn't go that way, you know, they just kind of continued on that dysfunction. So, um, they were, yeah, basically unhappy with themselves. Both my parents were first time immigrants here, but they basically came after only knowing three months of knowing each other. How could that go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's, it was almost like a Chinese arranged marriage, but it, it wasn't, but it was close to let's that. Let's make the most difficult transition a human being can make, and let's do it with strangers we're committed to. <laughs> um, do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have one average size, um, slightly younger brother. Yeah, so how do you, how do you, how's your relationship with him? It's pretty good. Um, Actually, for the first time, we're hitting a slight snafu, it, and it's funny because um, he has a resentment with me that we're kind of working through right now, and I told him, you know, there's a program for that. <laughs> <laughs> what does he resent you for? Um, if you're comfortable talking about it. Back, oh, yeah, I, I think I am. I, I just hope it makes sense. Back in the day, um, I... In my later 20s, I was unemployed for a little bit, and I was dependent on my folks for some money. And so at the time, my brother had warned me. He goes, do not take money from them. If you do, you know, they'll take advantage of you or, you know, they'll verbally abuse you again. Um, but I was not willing to listen to that, and so I did, and then I yeah pretty much he was right <laughs> and so since then now you know i i've i've pretty much wisened up and now i just do whatever i can to be financially on my own i have been fine for ever since then but um he still now still has that residual resentment because i recently have told him like yeah i'm not gonna talk to them anymore and he was like see i told you and like so you you don't talk to your parents no um what brought about that decision? Um, funny enough, it actually had to do a bit with the dwarfism part. My, uh, it was first was 
my mother and then my father followed subsequently. Um, well, the first thing that happened is she was... My mother never owned up to a lot of things in life. Um, I get that in, you know, I've shared on here that both my parents didn't really know each other since coming to the U.S. Um, unfortunately, because of that, they really did not have a good marriage. It was, I grew up in a house where both my parents fought constantly. It was not just fighting, it was screaming, yelling, rage fits. So like no coping mechanisms for when they would get overwhelmed. Yeah. And I would say no healthy coping mechanisms for <laughs> when they get overwhelmed. Yeah, correct. And then there was also like once the fighting was over, they would never apologize or never try to forgive each other or make amends. It would just kind of like go over the next day like nothing happened and then it just starts all over again. And so the um, elephant in the room shitting all over everything. <laughs> Yeah, so both my brother and I, since we were young, we both rallied after my mother because she was the one that was taking the brunt of uh, a lot of the rage from my father. Later on, we just we found out that she was a control freak too. But um, anyway, we had asked her time and again to divorce our father and to leave him, and we would support her and all this stuff, and she just never did. Um, and then a few years ago, about almost four years ago. I had confronted my mother about that. I'm like, why did you never do that? Because I think she was, she would, at the time, she would always bring up that she was going to divorce my father. She was going to leave him. She was going to divorce him. And then he had a stroke. And then she said, oh, I'm stuck with him. And then um, a few years ago, she said that she was finally going to do it. And then she just never did. And so finally, I'm like, why, why do you tell us this? You know, I'm, you know, we're obviously out of the house at this point, so it doesn't matter, but I don't need to hear this anymore. And I'm like, why did you not break up from dad? And then she's like, well, it's because of your dwarfism. Why? Because, you know, it was a problem. Are you kidding me? No. How? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she didn't explain herself? No, well, no, yeah, she she just, I think she just took the easy target, because she was, like, thinking, oh, because it was, like, going to be difficult raising me alone, which it probably would have, but at the same token, it was worse, I thought, saying where they were, but. What did, what did that make you feel when she said that? Well, I was pissed off as hell. Um, it was funny, because we were at one of my grandparents' retirement centers. I just walked away from her. That was the first time I've ever done something like that. I was like. Okay, I'm done talking to you, and I just left. <laughs> like a, an angry walk at a retirement center. <laughs> the, yeah. The, 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 the tranquility of the, of the retirement center with somebody just... Uh, actually, I'm sure there's a lot of moments in retirement centers where there's not tranquility, but that's, that's always my image of it, is it's just so, you know, chill. Um, wow, that's... And there was actually another thing that she said that did kind of catalyze that. But my mother had insulted my boyfriend, and he was an alcoholic. But even that, it was, I felt that she was just so out of line for insulting him because... To his face? Yeah. Well, she insulted him to some family friends who had no idea what was going on, who didn't even know who he was. But, I mean, that he was a wonderful man despite his addiction, but 
um, my mother has no place. Do you remember what she that. said? Were you there when she said it? Yeah, uh, yeah, she said it right in front of my What'd face. What'd she say? She just said that. Um, well, I was showing the picture of us together on vacation, and to this family friend, and then my uh, the friend was saying, "Oh, he's so handsome. He's so nice. Does he take care of you?" I'm like, "Yeah." And then my mother was like, "Oh, but you should know he's an alcoholic," and I was just like. Really? And I just, I couldn't believe that she said that because I'm like, if, you know, if you could take your own inventory, I mean, you would not be doing that whatsoever. But anyway. So was that the, the last straw with, uh, that led you to cut in contact with your, your mom? Uh, yeah. I, there was a, some events that had happened between us about five years ago, which I thought this is just not going to work, um, that I needed some help, something far greater than me. And so that's when I found a different, my first support group in San Diego, actually. And what were the, the topics of that support group? Uh, mostly on codependency. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you feel when you, when you started going there? Did you, did you hear your story come out of somebody's mouth? Your, your struggles with codependence? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, it was actually my very first phone call I made. It was from a book um, that I found in the self-help section, of course, that was about women who love too much. And the first person I called in the San Diego listing, she ended up being what who would later what we call a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was telling me about her story and how she was abused by her very perfectionist narcissist mother. And so I couldn't believe, I was like, oh my gosh, are you telling, like, I can't believe I'm hearing all this. Do you feel feel like that put in context the feelings that you had buried about your mom, or were you very conscious of those feelings about your mom? I I think buried is a very good way of putting it. Um, The minute they come to light, then it's like, yeah, then it becomes completely conscious awareness. It's being about that in denial. Yeah, I I think, and I'm speaking for myself, but for me, there are things in my life that I was conscious they weren't okay, but until I got in recovery, I didn't give weight to how serious they were and how damaging they were and how unacceptable they were for it to continue. And was that a fair way of, of summing it up for you with when you, the light bulb went off in your head as to this is a source of great pain for me. This is, this is more than just annoying. This is abusive. Completely. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think it's one thing to, like, I had always, unfortunately friends who I related to who also came from dysfunctional families in high school um it was weird because I grew up as kind of like the nerdy 3.5 4.0 student but I actually hung out with the rebel kids I didn't I never understood that but a lot of their homes were just as kind of chaotic and dysfunctional as mine what did you never understand because you were a good student and you were hanging out with the the yeah, you know, the, the fuck ups. <laughs> I, I guess so because I I don't know why I just related to them for some odd reason. I also did hang out with the honor roll girls, but I just could not relate to them. It felt uncomfortable to me. Do you, do you think uh, part of it might have been because you felt like an outcast because physically you were different than other people? That was a little bit part of it, but it was more the feeling, and it's really hard. Was to- it more of an attitude of of how you viewed? society and the and and the mainstream that kind of 
aligned you with them or help me help me understand what it was that drew you to them um i i honestly do think it's it's a very much of a feeling gut feeling type of comfortableness of where i felt did you feel uh welcomed and accepted by them right away did it take a while some most of them accepted me some of them didn't of course, you know, the rebel kids, I grew up in the suburb of Portland, Oregon, and so the rebels consisted of, like, there were the cowboys, and then there were those guys who were, like, the the, je- the torn-ripped jeans, and then flannels, and and there were also the trench coat guys, and, you know, there was a whole bunch of gals that also hung out with them, too, and I think a lot of them didn't understand, like, why are you hanging out with us? You're, like, this Asian little person two goody two shoes who doesn't relate to us why are you with us but i it was something about like maybe that feeling of inadequacy but also a feeling of rebelness and that i kind of like i don't give a shit type of feeling um when i was hanging out with the honor roll girls it felt you know like oh yeah everything's light and prestigious and on the surface is great but i knew that that was not how i really truly felt because i knew that life was more shitty than that yeah and it's kind of an extension of the people pleasing to your parents of trying to keep up with their perfectionist expectations whereas with the rebels it's like no i'm not playing your game anymore fuck off yeah here's 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 part of who i really am yeah when you push me <laughs> you know, I remember when I started hanging out with burnouts when I was 16. It was I, I don't think it was a conscious uh, fuck you to my parents. Part of it was because I, I knew if I just always had weed, they would hang out with me. <laughs> <laughs> but it there was a freedom in because I felt left behind um, in, in high school. Um, it it was a kind of a way of like oh you. You don't want to hang around with me? Well, fuck you. I'm going to reject everything that you hold dear. You know what I mean? I'm going to dress differently than you dress. I'm going to smoke weed, which you think is, you know, terrible. And uh, so I think it was as much at, at peers as it was at my at my parents. But there was a a kind of a a euphoria when you when you take those those kind of uh, those limitations of should and shouldn't and what do you remember give me some snapshots from from your your time with the with the rebels in in high school um oh, gosh i don't really remember just any specific event but it would be con- mostly just during lunchtime i would always hang out with them it was funny cuz in the beginning years in high school, I hung out with the good girls, but then eventually it kind of drifted over. I started hanging out actually with the drama kids, and then it went over to the rebel kids. And so I hung out a lot with the drama and rebels. Um, it was just always kind of silly with the rebels. I just remember a lot of times we'd be laughing and kind of making a mockery or just making stupid comments or or just something. I don't know. I do remember laughter being a good part of it, though. There's and, nothing like finding a group of friends that, that you can really laugh with. Yeah. There's I, nothing. Yeah, and just do stupid sayings with. Yeah. 
um, my parents did not know that I hung out with them for the most part, especially with the guys that were in that group. What do you think they would have said if they knew? Oh, they would have freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> they were already, um, of the few female friends I had in that group, they did not like them. They never understood that. But now looking at hindsight, I knew exactly why, you know, I hung out with them. Um, but with the drama kids, a lot of them, they also came from a lot of dysfunctional families. But the good thing about the drama kids was that, you know, drama was their outlet versus going with drugs or alcohol, which a lot of those other kids did. And so I did spend a, a lot of time in theater during my high school days. And so I had spent hundreds of hours doing backstage props and management and stuff like that. I did act a little bit, but a lot of it was more backstage. What What did the acting feel like? Acting was fun. Um, I I went to two different high schools. The first high school, they were willing to cast me in plays. The second, they weren't. <laughs> so that- I learned really quick. I'm like, okay, well, you're not going to be friendly to, to me or little people. So I ended up... Actually, that turned out to be a, a great turning point for me because I went into the visual arts then, and then that actually defined my career because I went to graphic design, and then that eventually went to for college. And uh, that's what you do now? Yeah. Uh, I do now more interactive design but i did print graphic design for 10 years give me uh some some, and i kind of don't want to hear these but i because i think they're going to be painful to hear but give me some snapshots of moments when it was really painful to be a little person in your life any any that kind of stand out um there's a f- okay uh, there wasn't a defining moment but a lot of repeated small moments and they would often be the same i think one of the biggest one we we're speaking about this earlier about my parents not having empathy like say when i was my parents and I, we would be going in a crowded place like Disneyland. And there would be kids, obviously, staring at me. Um, I would always hope that my parents would be like, help shield me or protect me or say something to the kids. And they just never did. Um, I don't know, was it because they were completely absent-minded and was not cognizant of that? Or they just didn't give a fuck? Maybe it was both. I think on a, lo- a big level, it probably was, I don't give a fuck. She'll have to deal with it on her own. Um, do, you and, rem- do you remember feeling any anything in those in those moments? Did you feel angry? Did you feel sad? Did you f- feel numb? Yeah, all of the above. A lot of it was it was a combination of those three, I would say, and definitely feeling abandoned, like you know that I'm not heard, I'm not understood. You know, I I realize, of course, you can't expect your father or your mother to save the day all the time, but you know, to have someone be your ally, be your support, make, make a fucking effort. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're not going to change how other people look at you, but it's nice to know that you got a, you're part of a team. Yeah. You're not out there flying flying by yourself. Exactly. So that was one part of it. Um, the other part, and this actually this permeated into my love life, I would say definitely, um, was that my parents never really gave an iota about my love life. They, in fact, I would say treated me very asexually. This happens a lot with people who have disability that... Um, 
and I hate to say that it is something that's a very broad topic in the disability community about how we're seen as asexual beings. Like when you see a person in a wheelchair, most people think that's a person in a wheelchair. They don't bother to say, oh, that's a beautiful woman in a wheelchair. That's a handsome man in a wheelchair. They just think that's a person in a wheelchair. And so I think my parents thought this pretty much the same thing or that because of that shame, they just never addressed it with me. Um, so like we would be having dinner at the dinner table. This is very common. Um, and my parents would just be like, so, uh, G, that's my brother's name, uh, would, how's your dating life? Are you seeing anybody? And then they would completely skip me every single time. And when I did end up dating people, my parents, especially my father would just laugh about it. He would just what? think that it just wouldn't go anywhere. What? Yeah. That had to hurt so deeply. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> uh, I, I think it. Yeah, I really had to work a lot on my love addiction to see what that part affected me. I mean, and Sam, that's horrible. That's like, that's like re- mocking the inner core of who we are. You know, who we want to love, what we want to love to. For the person who's supposed to protect you to say to you basically, you have you have no inner core. You're a thing. I mean, that's yeah, it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you that you that you had to experience that. That's. I mean, I know parents and people abandon each other in all kinds of ways, but every once in a while I hear something on this podcast that's so cruel and so abandoning that um, it takes my breath away. Yeah, Well, well, thank you for even having that empathy, because I don't think, I mean, most people don't even think that or see that. you're closer to me to cry, but I guess I'm not. Because I, 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 uh, when I, I did my four step inventory, as what a lot of support groups do on this earlier this year, I did 40 pages on my parents. I couldn't believe it. Good for you. Resentments, man. <laughs> and what did you, and I, I know, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. Oh, well, I cried. Oh my God. When I did my fifth, uh, what they call it, the fifth step, um, with my sponsor, just on the f- three first big doozies on my parents. One was that they invalidated me and bullied me. Then they treat me asexually. Um, and then the third was, I don't remember what the third was, but it was something along the lines of being a woman or being a, a little person. But anyway, I just bawled on, on, I was on Skype with, with him and I was just crying my eyes out. And then I had to do like, so I did like four more days of inventory with him. And, um, yeah, it was just bawling after bawling. <laughs> so I think I'm, I'm, I'm fine now. <laughs> what did you, and, and crying is okay on this podcast. We, we encourage it. It's, um, I, I love a good cry. I actually wish I could cry more than, than I do because sometimes I just feel like I'm, I'm numb. Like I'm just, uh, um, like I'm a bank vault and my emotions are, you know, locked, locked behind it. Um, when you did that, delved into, the resentments and you I know part of the process is also finding out did I have a part in mm-hmm. in any of this which often isn't the case yes especially if it's a parent child relationship yes um 
were there any instances where you were like, oh, I have I have a, a part in this, you know, maybe I added gasoline to the fire by doing this or that, or was it was that not the case? I would say for the most part that was not the case um, because I relied on them as my caretakers. However, I think the biggest thing I should have done was gone for help at a much, much earlier age. I went into my first support group in San Diego when I was 28-ish. And, you know, it that was fine. That happened then. But, you know, there's certain groups where there's now teenagers in them. I, God forbid, had I gone there sooner, <laughs> I would have gotten life a little bit better or, or understood, hey, you know, this is not about them. I yeah. so I so wish we could emotionally educate kids when they're when they're little so they begin to know what's abusive and what's not and what's you know healthy and what's not and how to express yourselves and then maybe they could see a parent and go well oh, maybe I'm not a terrible child maybe my parents just sick maybe my parent is just emotionally sick yeah because um, a lot for a lot of us I couldn't see it until I was in my 30s Mm-hmm. And that's so many layers of self-hatred piled on top of layer. Um, talk about what it felt like when you when you had that good cry. It definitely was like an outburst. I, I would say for sure a waterfall of a lot of, like, it was like a pileup of everything that's gone on through the years. Um, and acknowledging that... And when I did my inventory, I did it in a way, it was a little bit different. At first, I kind of did it haphazardly, like just on any incident I could think of. And then I'm like, wait, okay, this is not going to work. I actually reorganized it and did it like, okay, this is on perfectionism, what they expected out of me. This is on my dwarfism. This is how they treated me. This is on, you know, being a woman. Yeah, that was another big issue, too. And then looking at all those, clearly, I was able to really get down and see for sure what was the defects that they were perpetuating on me and then what their, I was, their character defects you mean yeah their character yeah. defects what i was gonna say second is then what became my character defects um and then the part in it and you know of course the patterns became a lot more obvious after that your patterns or their patterns uh both yeah yeah can you can you talk about some of those and, and character defects that you discovered in yourself Sure. Because um, one of the things I like to try to do with the podcast is keep it um, balanced. Because uh, so often, especially if, if you know we had parents that really, really failed us in a lot of ways, it can be easy to forget that we also kind of take on some of their bad qualities that then we have to battle in ourselves. And I don't like I don't like the podcast to become a us versus them thing but more of a how do we get better from this situation that was unfortunate and um so oh definitely i i totally agree and that's why you know the fourth and the fifth column are so important in the steps of uh caretaking and trying to fix things is one of my biggest defects uh, I'm actually in another program. Uh, that one is specifically for children uh, from dysfunctional families. And that one is a huge theme in that program. Um, and that one I'm working on currently that I go to some really great meetings for. Um, that one, I would say because, especially with my, how I saw my 
mother wanted to fix me in so many ways then became my habit of trying to fix other people trying to fix situations trying to fix my boyfriends um and it's inevitable unfortunately i think no matter who i end up dating or who i'm with I, there's always going to be some part of me that's not going to be happy with some part of them and want to fix that or wish it was something else. So it's for you. It's not to protect them from pain. You think that they're going to experience by meeting the world with this thing they can't see. It's more because it's fucking bugging you and you don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah. 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 So a lot of it is like it's just constantly focus on yourself, focus on yourself, you know, work on you. Give me some instances of of things you tried to change about people around you that you can now look back and go that was kind of ludicrous well i think the uh, the classic example is probably my ex-boyfriend who was an alcoholic i tried to get him to come to some support groups and that did not go over very well he did go to a one miraculously i couldn't even believe he did that um and but later on i realized you know it was me trying to fix him was because i was trying to fix the relationship i was trying to make myself fall in love with him which i actually did not really love him was the best of who who i was or who he was did you feel like you were addicted to the fantasy that you had created of 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 what you wanted him to be and you didn't want to let that let that go yeah i i would say that's a very good part of it um, another part is because this man was my first very serious advertised boyfriend. And on paper, he looked great. He worked for a great company. He had a good education. He was from uh, England. Was this the drinker? Yeah. Okay. And so, and then my parents actually liked him. So that was another big plus. <laughs> but, but there were, you know, some similar qualities, I guess, why they all resonate. But um, anyway, but he, I mean, he, he is still a fine man. And... I think it took me this last year away from him and for me to work on myself, for me to realize that I actually didn't love him f- uh, for someone that I really was looking for, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. What are you What are you looking for now in, uh, in a partner now that you've been in some support groups and you've done some self-reflection and self-exploration and... Um, kind of gotten more in touch with your soul what do you what do you look for in a, in a partner now <laughs> if you if it's something you're conscious of is why are you laughing if you'll put up with me <laughs> i think i think that's the biggest one <laughs> what what's hard about you to put up with um yeah i go crazy sometimes how so i i would say um Worrying about other things, worrying about other people, um, doting on him, doting on my relationships, or, uh, you know, as I think as an addict, it's always easy for me to future trip or past trip. That's another part of me as well. Um, granted, those are all things that I have worked, been working on, continue to work on, but, you know, I know that I go through my days. Um, so, I, I think that's probably the best thing. If he'll put up with me and also looking for just someone who I, I'm a little bit reluctant, a little bit gun shy right now to put myself out there and date. Cause I, I was just sharing with you that I had called it off with a friend of mine yesterday. It was extremely, extremely painful. Um, and we weren't even a pl- platonic relationship. 
or romantic or somewhere in between? It was somewhere in between. Um, I kept putting the brakes on it, though, because there was something that I wanted him to apologize for. And I don't know if it's just a matter of perception or if he's just not there yet. Um, but because of that, where I'm realizing it's like, you know, if I'm going to be attracting the person where who I'm exactly at spiritually, and if I'm kind of weak somewhere, if he's kind of weak somewhere, if we're both not ready to deal with that, and it definitely has to be a team effort on dealing with things, then I'm probably not so healthy for a relationship right now. And I, it's it's so hard to say because I always feel like I I remember this one guy who said he was going to have his second kid and the second came 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 unexpectedly and he was like telling me he goes you know you're never ready for for the kid that just happens <laughs> and that's that's kind of how I feel about relationships right now I feel like I'll probably I'll never be perfect knowing this in recovery um, on the good side about that I think one day before I did think oh yeah I'm gonna be perfect for recovery when I get through this I'm gonna be the best girlfriend ever I think this is actually a pretty good jump away from that <laughs> so when you when you talk about being an addict what are what you're you're not a um, drug or alcohol addict are you no um, so is it mostly uh, addicted to people in various ways or is what 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 are the i guess i'm asking what are all the addictions that you give me the full smorgasbord of <laughs> on sam c's plate that's a very good question uh, you know i saw for the longest time i was a co-addict uh, it wasn't until i went to partic- two particular programs where i realized that my addiction is love and sex i don't know if they go in that order but um that those two scenes do make me more selfish than I say than as a co-addict. I think co-addicts are far more giving than addicts. <laughs> oh, that, that's an understatement. <laughs> but often, oftentimes their motives are very hidden, even to themselves. Yes, very true. <laughs> uh, talk talk about uh, talk about that the the latter um, or the the former um, about. I, I forgot exactly how you said it, but. Um, uh, about sex and love addiction. Oh, uh, well, I would say it was my M.O., and I'm sure this was derived somewhere in my childhood, at least since I was six, and um, that I always wanted a boy in my life. And it was something like wanting that boy or man now to basically be my identity. And, and in many ways, it is a co-addiction. And in another way, it's an addiction because it's objectifying a, a, a person or a purpose. So that's why I specifically actually go to a very heavily male-dominated group on that addiction. Um, because I think objectifying it does make it different than being a co-addict. And you go to the male-dominated group because it helps you see them as people and not uh, objects that are going to save or validate you? Or what? Don't let me put words in your mouth. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand what it is. Oh, it's all right. Well, I, that's definitely one angle of it. I think the other big reason why I go to that group specifically, actually there's a couple of reasons, 
that group, they have different tools than the love addiction support group. In the group that specifically kind of looks at sex as acting out, that one they actually have a pro, um, tools where they have circles that define their sobriety. And so there's like an innermost circle where that one has behaviors like I should not be talking to my exes, I cannot be fantasizing about certain men, or I cannot um, go out with unavailable men, say like married men. And and none of this is because it's immoral, it's because it's addictive to you. Yes, correct. And then there's, and this is the saving grace of this tool. There's a middle circle, what they call it, is basically kind of like the yellow light that will help the addict be aware of their behavior before they start really acting out. Before they blow their red light. Yeah, before they blow their gun. And so um, that one is like, if I'm not getting my emotional needs met, if I'm dabbling online. I mean, that's that's actually a big one for me. And I cannot make it in my, my first support group is because that middle part was not defined i needed that gray area to help go like beep beep you know hey you're not you're in bad area you bad zone so in a way it's kind of like a trigger that that you need to understand this the weight of what it can do if you kind of wallow in that area long enough yeah exactly and so that's where it you know the objectification is huge because of why you know like pornography and sex addiction is such a big deal is because like for you or just in general in ge- in general but like is is for people to know when they go on the internet that is going to be a catalyst for you to go to the next step and so for a lot of people actually in that program going on the internet is you know is dangerous and so sometimes people just don't even have it in their homes um that's why if I'm going out, like not to have it in the hotel room and, and things like that to do preventive behaviors. Um, and then, you know, obviously the good part about it is to have the outer circle or the top lines, what they call in the other group, um, supportive, positive behavior to counteract all of that to I stay see. sober. Uh, was pornography a big, was it an addictive thing for you? Not so much. I won't admit to not looking at it and fantasizing. However, I have, I I think for women, it's, our our crack is romance stories and porn stories, which I have looked at. And I won't lie and say that masturbation is actually not uh, an inner circle and extreme behavior for me because I'm actually an avoidant and anorexic. And And what do you mean by that? Uh, an avoidant or anorexic means that I actually deprive myself of love and sex. I know this is getting all confusing, but no, this is why I, th- I thought you would be a great guest is because it, all of this shit is so is so uh, complicated. That's why I'll never <laughs> run out of guests is because the brain is so fucking uh, contradictory. Yes. Yeah, it is. Like, people are going, I don't get it. You're acting out, but then you're acting in. And avoidance is act- is exactly that. It's acting in. Withdrawing. Your Withdrawing. life becoming small. Yeah. Not practicing self-care. Standing over the sink. Eating. You know, not cooking for yourself. It's that I, I know because I struggle. I struggle with self-care. And it's the easiest thing in the world to do. You know, to not shower. To not... 
you know, to put on dirty clothes. You know, the socks I have on right now, I've been wearing for three days. I've got, there are clean socks right next to them. <laughs> and I don't grab the clean socks and I don't know why I can't do that. Why I feel like I have to wear the dirty socks. Oh, I totally get you there. Yeah. Yeah. And we are going to take a little pause right here. And speaking of self-care, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors, Harry's. You guys, of course, know that this is Movember. You're letting your mustaches get, get crazy out there, guys and girls. You know, women don't feel like you can't grow a handlebar mustache this month. Uh, I will be there. If you tell me where to meet you, I will bring mustache wax and we will set that baby up for you. Uh, Harry's is a great company. Uh, I love their their razors, their shaving cream, uh, their aftershave. And why would you pay $32 for an eight pack of blades at the drugstore and have to wait for some jackass to open up the plexiglass cabinet? It's half the price at Harry's. And with Harry's, you're going to get a better shave. It's good for your skin, your face, your legs. Maybe you want to shave your taint. Maybe you want to go ahead and get into a sweet yoga pose and take care of the unspeakable. Harry's doesn't have a problem with that. Anyway, check out Harry's. It's shipped to your door. Uh, Great quality. I like how it feels on my face afterwards. I've told you before that after I shave with Harry's, people mistake my face for a baby's butt and they they try to put diapers on my face which is a little inconvenient, but I don't mind it because it's a good shave. All right. Go check it out. Go to harrys.com uh, and enter the coupon code MENTALPOD and you get five bucks off. Start ba- start shaving better today. Oh, I wish that had gone smoother. Let's try that again. Start shaving better today. Harry's. I want to also give some love to uh, to Squarespace. Uh, I, love, uh, I love Squarespace. I put together a... Um, website that is all of my favorite dog pictures that I've taken and go check it out it's paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com and uh squarespace it's an all-in-one platform that uh helps you create a professional website a portfolio an online store and uh for a free trial and 10% off if you go to squarespace.com uh, and uh, enter the offer code MENTAL at checkout. Uh, yeah, you get to, you get a free trial and 10% off. Squarespace is it's just a great product. They have beautiful templates, simple and easy to use, um, drag and drop content. It's uh, plans start at eight bucks a month and it includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. They have online uh, stores that you can add to your site. And you know, what better way to express your passion uh, out there on the, the internets than uh, than your own website? Uh, there's there's really no reason not to do it, unless you're a dullard and you have no ideas, in which case, go ahead, sit on the couch with your thumb up your ass. Good luck to you. But if you have a passion and you have something that you'd like to express to the world, do it with Squarespace. Uh, and go check out my website. You'll see it took me less than an hour to put uh, all that stuff together and... Uh, yeah, I just I just like their product. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. And uh also want to tell you that, you know, every week you hear me reading ads for Squarespace and Harry's and stuff like that. Um I don't take ads. I don't promote um products that I don't believe in. And if you're a company out there that likes what we do here on the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and you would like to book an ad, um, 
because it, it does work. 62% of my listeners bought a product that they heard about on this podcast. Um, if you're interested, go to midroll.com slash mental. That's M-I-D-R-O-L-L dot com slash mental. And you can find out more. Uh, the midroll uh, has a bunch of great clients. They have uh, WTF with Mark Marin, Comedy Bang Bang, uh, a host of, of others. And uh, I, I really enjoy them. They're, they're great at hooking uh, podcasts up with with advertisers and um, they also have a, a website that's really seamless to to connect the two so um, come support me that's what I'm telling you fucking bastards get in the line let's go chop chop all right I'm done with my soapbox I mean, there's, like, nights where, like, I don't brush my teeth. I mean, this stuff, like, yeah, that's self-deprivation as well. S- simple little things. Um, and, you can, that- and you can blame it as laziness, but I think often when you grew up in an invalidating and abusive environment, something about it feels right. Something mm-hmm. about denying something to ourselves feels almost honest in a sick way, even though it's not, even though it's terrible. Yeah. And that's why it's it's weird doing contradictions contrary actions to that because they're like this should feel good but it doesn't because i didn't grow up with this which totally does not make sense but it, I, I think it changes as and i'm sure you would agree as we begin to self-advocate and take care of ourselves and stand up for ourselves it's scary at first and it's foreign but after a while it really becomes easier and almost intuitive sometimes because we begin i think those first sentences are hard to form of I will not be, please don't speak to me in that tone. If you continue to speak to me in that tone, um, I'm going to leave or, you know, whatever. And the first time you say it, it's like, oh, I feel like I'm going to cry or like I'm, you know, I'm hyperventilating. And the 10th time you do it, you're like, all right, hung up. What am I going to do now? Oh, I think I'm going to go get a pizza. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like um, a practice. I, I suppose it's a, it's, a, it's a language that we that we practice yeah do you remember the first time uh that you consciously self-advocated for yourself other than just cutting contact with your uh with your parents did you just cut contact or did you say something to them um i think it was a gradual process to that those two defining moments was my mother was definitely the first i started it i just stopped contacting them as much and then I told them I said you know you have to change your tone or change your emails with me I'm not going to talk to you this way and they continued on and then it just kind of got less less and less and then eventually it just I just said okay I'm not going to talk to you guys if you guys since you can't comply then what, what got less less and less just the communication between them it was to the point of just the, the little emails the, f- the frequency of it or the what was talked about in the emails uh the frequency and the content yeah okay. it was like it was getting to the point of just like one-liners for i me. see because it's like if they couldn't criticize you about stuff what the hell is there to talk about eventually <laughs> it was the weather and it's like when that then your mom started criticizing the weather and you're like all right this is impossible yeah yeah exactly uh you know i Actually, the recovery rooms are, are, and I hate to say this in a way because I realize that I have my own defects to work on, obviously, but the recovery rooms are actually good places to practice good boundaries 
Um, Talk more about that if you would. I'm going to grab a water. You good with your water? Oh, sure. Uh, because, and I had shared this recently, actually, at a meeting when I got my one-year chip, uh, that I'm going to be attracting people who are going to probably have my same defects or similar defects that they are not willing to look at or, or resonate with them somehow. And in my first year in the love addiction program, it was difficult because I had attracted some female bullies. Um, it took me some time and guts to get back to some of the rooms to put up with that and to put boundaries down. And I, I, I won't be shy, shy and say that I probably instigated a little bit of it in, in my revengefulness. <laughs> <laughs> and I sent some nasty texts back, but, um, and, you know, know, knowing that now, whenever you get into an altercation, know that later you might have to make an amends. <laughs> kind of helps with the process. <laughs> it's almost like having your jaw wired shut. <laughs> yeah, but I think the rooms are actually a good place to practice because of the anonymity and because you know that everyone is there working on becoming better people for the most part even if they are not working on the steps even if they don't want to look at that it's good for you to work on it and and there's a chance that they understand that boundaries are an important thing for somebody to set and and if you say you know i don't appreciate it when you talk to me that way that it, it might it there's a better chance a light bulb's going to go off in their head if they're in some type of recovery program than somebody off the street that has never thought that it's not just your problem. Yeah, completely. Yeah, ab absolutely, I would say that. And, you know, for the... I really have to give it to... It is the people who walked the program before me who I'm able to learn so much wisdom from them. And, you know, if they're, they're able to spot something in me and be like, hey, you know, Sam, you should knock it off because I kind of, you know, da -da -da -da, aren't you kind of calling the kettle black? And they would be like, oh, okay, thanks for shedding that light. <laughs> then, you know, it humbles you. That, that's why I always say the support groups are are so amazing because, you know, therapists are are great and they can take care of a certain thing and give us insights that a support group might not be able to, especially with something that's really complicated and, and um, difficult to understand. But therapists don't often, or social workers as well, often don't call you on your shit the way somebody in a program in a support group will. And and hopefully they do it with love and the and the support group. But um, that to me has been the thing that's helped me grow the most is the guidance with love, but the truth giving you the truth with love. That's what I get. I get from support groups. I get the truth in therapy too, mm -hmm. um, but not the ones that really force me to go deep really deep has that been your experience do you do therapy yes i do therapy uh i have a good therapist now and i totally understand your point i do feel sometimes and i love my therapist he does enable me a little bit <laughs> so i i totally get you uh, but yeah there is that experience and the quality you have when you're going through something with fellows 
And if you could see something in them that you see in you, I think that's a huge guiding light. No pun intended. Um. <laughs> and I think, and I think it's easier to to believe when it's coming from somebody um, who has our similar experience because mm-hmm. they're, it's like, why would they? Why do? We, why would they be doing? They must. There's a good chance they know because they've been through such similar things that I have been. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think another point of it oh gosh i'm on a train of thoughts welcome to my world <laughs> welcome to my world <laughs> jesus it only gets worse it only gets worse um oh shoot uh, i well on. i interjected so i interjected the, with the gettysburg address right there so <laughs> how you could have maintained your uh, your thought process um you're talking about people calling you on on stuff and your character defects in the in the support groups. Oh, oh yeah, thank you. Sorry. So mm. that does come back. Okay. Well, I realized a lot of issues I had with I hate saying this because I feel like it's a taboo subject, but you know, we're on air, so that's why I should talk about it. Um with women is because you know, there were probably a lot of issues that my mother was that I was seeing in these women that were getting a response out of me. And unfortunately, because of that, I realized that's when I went over to the more male-dominated groups, because then in those groups, I felt more safe and was able to actually start really working on my recovery on my own. Because once, if we let people work out the issues on their own, then they kind of go away. And then when I'm a little bit better, I could go back and then when if they're still acting in a certain way and then if I've worked on my recovery and then that they still behave that way, then I don't respond as that little kid anymore. I don't know if I'm making any You're sense. You're making complete sense. Okay. And that's like to me the heart of where we aim for in recovery is to get to that place they talk about in the serenity prayer, you know, let me know what I have control over, what I don't and uh and how to, and how to know the difference between that cuz 99% of life is just our reaction to what happens around us and yeah. we think it's about trying to control what happens but I mean, you look at the universe and it's like who is can you could die from fucking Ebola tomorrow <laughs> you really think you're going to you're going to change the driver next to you and make them see uh, you know what the right way to drive is yeah. You're fucking crazy. Especially in LA. Forget that. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever experienced um, being sexually objectified because you're a little person? Oh, yeah. Talk about, <laughs> talk about that and what, 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 what's that like? Um, sorry if I'm getting a little blushing or something you know it, you don't have to talk about it if you oh if you i don't, don't want to i don't mind it's so funny okay. because today it actually happened today earlier and it hadn't happened in a while i used to get really grossed out by it and be like oh gosh how can you know especially by older men and what i mean by older is like people 15 20 years older than me at least um going after me or making comments i was in downtown la today that's why i you know of course you encounter interesting people there and 
today it didn't really bother me as much. I think it is just because since I've been in these particular programs and have heard the other side and been with men and heard their stories, I start to understand their perspective a little bit more. And, you know, this doesn't quantify, you know, certain behaviors are still acceptable, but like today I was like called, hey, beautiful, hey, gorgeous. And I, you know, I didn't know some of them were patronizing or some of them were real, but I was like, eh. You know, before that would have totally, like, I'd been like, hey, don't do that or da da da. And, um, I, I think now in recovery, we just, I just know it's more about them and not so much about me, just for me to keep walking my route. route. <laughs> Hope I don't bump into somebody. Um, but yeah, in the past, it would bother me quite a bit. The teasing still bothered me actually more than the sexual objectifying, because actually sexual objectifying was still like, hey, they actually still want me. And that's kind of what ran my addiction eventually. Isn't that funny that the, the very thing that debases us can be the thing that turns us on? And that's one of the things I really try to get the the listeners to understand is that doesn't mean you want it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's it, it's often our way of trying to change you know something that is painful to us. You know, it's like our brain's way of saying, well, I can't control this abuse coming towards me, so I'm going to be turned on by it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it's better than nothing. We have a lot of listeners that are feminists who are beat themselves up because they have fantasies about being degraded. And and they they think it's a, you know, it, it's a personal failing on their part. And no, it's their, it's your brain's way of trying to deal with whatever whatever that that is and it doesn't matter why your brain is doing it what matters is that you have compassion for yourself and don't take your your fantasies as a comment on your morality yeah our fantasies have nothing to do with morality yeah i i would say that that, that you just nailed it around the head right there i had no idea feminists thought that way oh and, absolutely i mean all people have dark most people have some darkness to their sexuality, but um, and and male feminists as well uh, will have a, you know a fantasy about that, and they feel terrible. And uh, you know, if you're not going out and hurting anybody, you know, fucking em- embrace <laughs> embrace what the universe put in your head, or tell it to shut up, or you know, one of the two. But don't take it as a comment on who you are morally that's such a waste that's such a cruel thing to do to yourself yeah and i i think exactly the more especially in these sex and love programs that we're able to grapple what sex really means and love means and actually i was able to expose some of what my own sexual preferences are it's not necessarily in the inventory work, but it was something that my sponsor and I worked on. Um, my sponsor, my former sponsor, at least, uh, he w- is a transgender. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have talked about, like, preferences and dominance and submission and things like that. And so that was actually a very kind of releasing conversation. Because you have. had felt shame about... Um wanting to indulge in these things or them being um you know something that that you entertained or, or or acted on i think there's some thoughts i've like entertained i've 
I once was in a relationship, actually was a was a little person who was into SM bondage stuff. That wasn't quite my total thing, like using outside tools and all that stuff, but paraphernalia. However, I you know, there's a few of the role playing I wouldn't mind. And I think that was an interesting exploration. And it, like you were saying about releasing the shame, because then that lets us be brave and lets us, you know, do desirable things that make us feel wanted and makes us feel sexual and sensual and good and, about ourselves. And seen and accepted. And to me, that that's the, the best sex is where we feel that we are completely ourselves and we're showing the part of ourselves that is not easy and it's being accepted. I mean, that... That to me is like the uh, how how can the sex not be great when you just feel completely safe and loved and seen and you're and you're not being the least bit false. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's completely. And you know, I got to admit, I I say this with a little bit of a cringe. Um, I have dated a number of little people, little men. I hate saying little men, but it's just the way it is. Um, in my life, especially through my 20s, I did mostly little people, men. However, kind of coming into this through recovery, I realized the first thing that attracts me to for a man is whether or not he is spiritually sound. Or not he has recovery, that's kind of second. Of course, it would be great if he has recovery. Then I could kind of talk the same language with him. But um, whether he's little or tall, that kind of is almost doesn't matter at this point because those two things way precede his stature. Um, that said, I do admit I am very attracted to tall men mm-hmm. <laughs> who are like five foot ten or older or over, and that probably is a, I don't know if that's considered a preference or a fetish. Um, I think it would only be a fetish if that's the only thing that could really uh, sexually please you or yeah. get, get you off. I think then it would be considered um, a fetish, but I, I could be wrong. Exactly, or objectifying them. Yeah, I. But I if it was objectifying in role play, um, and and it wasn't a secret agenda, then I think that could be a healthy thing. Yeah, I, I very much agree. So I think since then I've actually been a lot less shameful of being attracted to tall men. Um, I don't know. It was just always something that I've lusted, liked. My the first real serious boy crush I had was in sixth grade was with this guy. I think he was actually close to six feet tall. He had a growth spurt at a very early age. Um, and subsequently, I had a lot of crushes on tall men since then. And I think in the past, I used to be more shamed about that and not really did, talk to my parents about it. Did, was it that you felt like in a, in a certain way you were um, betraying the little people community? Or what was it that made you ashamed? That was definitely one part of it. The little people community, like many minority communities, um, especially for the men, they think that you should stick with their kind. Because- of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> all, I'm sorry all, if I'm like acting a little all, ignorant. <laughs> all men think uh, all women should stick to uh, whatever group they belong to. Do you know what I mean? I do not know Because that's that. more women for them. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm sure the same with women. Yes. Tr- I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Well, you know, well, it gets up, people up in arms. In the little people group, I remember there's this one regional event, and there was this 
kind of hot average size woman that came in was a was a guy was a low person guy and all the women were outraged as she came to this event she was wearing like this red mini dress too and strappy mini dress and she's just like how dare he bring her in and i'm just like if it was the tables were turned all the guys would yeah. be, i mean like yeah. they'll be to- totally going gaga but anyway it's <laughs> hilarious but um yeah i i do think now that I'm at least able to honor myself, but yeah, it's, it, it has become more accepting for at least on the low people community to have mixed couples. What they call mixed couples is bringing in an average type partner. Um, I know one of my close friends, she's in Texas and she was one of the first to actually what they call an inter height. I think, I think they used to call them interspatial, but that apparently is not so PC. <laughs> I don't go for no height mixing. <laughs> but um her husband is is a pretty tall man and she started bringing him to conventions and he was one of the first people and they actually had workshops for mixed couples so and they're still together going on strong so yeah i would imagine there's a lot of uncharted territory if you've you've never done that yourself but um what are some other things that you'd like to share about your life um your struggles, or or your uh, achievements, your breakthroughs. Um, I think maybe talking about service would be good. Okay. Um, you know, unfortunately, all of my sponsees had to relapse. I I don't have a very good record of that. I will say that love addiction is one of the hardest addictions to get through. I, I'm not in the other drinking addictions or other mm-hmm. substance addictions. So I'd have nothing to compare it to. But um, I would say since coming to my second year of the, I'm now going on into my third year in my first love and sex program. And then the second year in my, in the sex program uh, is really learning about humility. And a lot of the humility is just listening to people, being there for the newcomers, um, trying to do things behind the scenes, uh, behind behind the meetings. Like, uh, I'm in service in a lot of meetings I go to, treasurer for some of them, a co-secretary for another one. And it really helps, I mean, just being able to facilitate the groups and make sure they just happen. I don't say just doing service just because that's what all the programs say. It because it really is about giving back because, I mean, there's so many people that gave to me. I just can't imagine how we can't keep passing it on. So what do you, what feelings does it, does it give you doing it? Does it give you feelings doing it? Yeah. Um, it, it definitely makes me feel worthwhile. It makes me feel like, okay, that this is love being able to give back to the group that has so freely been given to me. Um, it was so funny because I originally had a lot of resentment was the first group I was with. And after I went back after s- several months to this last meeting, I know I need to keep going back to just help out. Because once I get rid of that condition, I feel like, oh, you know, I have to get something back. I have to get whether it's a thank you back or notoriety or something, then that's not being of service because that's getting something in it for for me for being selfish and now and it's so codependent yeah <laughs> you know what i mean yeah exactly and it's it still happens in the rooms or you know it's it's easy to see that but um being a service is when there's absolutely no conditions attached 
And and I I think coming from a place of I hate the word but abundance rather than fear, you know that I'm a terrible person if I don't do this. Yeah, but giving from it from I know this is going to feel good. This is the the right thing to do in this moment. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I feel like a lot of this is actually doing also stuff outside the rooms. Like I do talk about this publicly on my Facebook feed. Um, I know probably some of my friends think I'm absolutely crazy, but I kind of don't care. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I think it it does shed light into a lot of what addicts and co-addicts go through. Um, You know, I do talk about it with other people. I practice the 12, these, you know, the, the steps in my life on a pretty regular basis. And it's something that I'm rather proud of but it's also because it makes sure that I stay humble because if I don't practice this all the time then I know that my pride will get me at some point and it just gets worse from there and the resentments the resentments start piling up yeah there's there that is resentment and fear man nothing will nothing will fuel an addiction like resentment and fear yeah nothing um anything else um I don't know if you want me to read off any of these. The fears and loves? Yeah. Yeah, hit me with some. Okay. Um, Okay, I thought that this was going to be kind of funny. I fear and hate Asian men. (laughs) (laughs) And a girl. Fucking gloves off. First one right out of the gate. Uh, Even Asian American men, because often, in my experience, they're the biggest group of guys who will dismiss me because of my stature when I'm an Asian fellow sister. And it's your fear is that you hate them or you hate them? Fear and hate. Okay. <laughs> you're doing a combo. <laughs> I know. There's no dad issues so there. You're, so <laughs> you're afraid. You're afraid that, that, that it's coming from a place of hate. Is that what you're, is that what you're saying? Um, or it's a super, super... Is that your way of trying to sneak a hate in under the <laughs> under the fear umbrella? I guess so. Maybe right. it's, it's just a lot of fear. Okay. Um, well, but, isn't that what most hate comes from anyway? Is probably. is a reaction to our our fear? Yeah, exactly. Uh, us just projecting our fear. Yeah, because humans only act. I heard this earlier in a meeting today. F- humans operate only on two conditions: fear and love. I I agree with that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. All right. Um, but I do think I do think John Cho is not bad looking <laughs> i'll let him know <laughs> um i'm not stereotyping by the way at all so, um i fear not having solid female friendships especially post recovery i haven't always been a very good thoughtful friend and i know i've projected my issues on um i virtually i think have broken up with most of my fr- female friends do you do you feel what do you what do you think that's about? Well, is there a competitiveness in there? I I would say just being too codependent for too long. And of you being too needy or you being too controlling or both? Being too needy and not really meeting my needs, just really not meeting my needs. Um I 
And it's hilarious because I've been in the codependency program for the longest, and that's still the number one issue I deal with with females. Um, I tried to befriend some females after I had kind of fallen off the earth for a while and went back to them, and a lot of them couldn't handle the new me. And so that's when I it just kind of shown like a new light I was like whoa I have like these new demands these new standards I have apparently so um it's it's difficult I won't lie making female friends um and I know part part of it a lot of it is to do with um there, there's one part there's one part in being really needy and wanting the friendship right away and I think females smell that as my like 10 miles away they just don't want that but then the other part is wanting to be like that perfect friend and then being and afraid of like fucking it up so badly so i just totally stay detached and avoidant which is how i work with my male friends (laughs) male romantics friends anyway and so um it's it's trying to get in between those two dichotomies that makes sense that makes sense. That's that seems like a really difficult gray area to navigate. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that's why there are support groups for that because <laughs> you can't just read a paragraph in a book about it and go, oh, "Okay, I got it. Now I know what to do." Yeah. Yeah, and I think for females, they never it's so silly. Females were so competitive and it's never talked about because it's not cool to talk about it. It just, the female species just is and um, with each other, you mean? Yeah. And, you know, I realize that I have a more kind of assertive masculine side. And I think that turns off a lot of females. Um, and I also think that a lot of average height females, when they kind of deal with me, it's kind of like... I, I, I don't know if, if I'm projecting something, but I feel like it it does kind of make them question like can i have a friend like you know who's gonna be this and this and this and be be different as well so because everybody wants to be unique and special and stuff and i know sometimes when i try to be just too much myself that sometimes that's a lot to handle it doesn't work out yeah okay i don't know if that makes any sense i think it does yeah i think it does that if you were to just be completely yourself um it would be too much for them yeah i think this is why f- uh males and females is so easy to become friends because they don't have that competitive element in there mm-hmm. because we're opposite genders so we don't have to worry about that yeah so. and, I, and i think in a good match we complement each other what one lacks you know the other one has an abundance and vice versa yeah it's just kind of hard when you're a sex addict to be friends with people of the opposite sex, unless they're gay. <laughs> is, it, is it because your your addict isn't going to get anything out of them? And so it's like, why bother? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a clause in the rooms, especially in the drinking program and in the sex program, that you really shouldn't be having opposite sex friends unless it's like the one. Mm. Or a gay friend, that's fine. Yeah. Um, isn't that mostly though in the when you're new? Uh, I or, guess so. I I don't know. For me, it's difficult because I 
I always feel like when I have straight single male friends, there's always that other thing that there's a pink elephant in the room. So for you or for them or for both of you, I, I maybe both. I don't know. Um, that's in my experience. It's been I, I feel like the other parties always wanted more. And I just f- want to live a more kind of cleaner life and don't have to worry whether or not they are feeling a certain way or they have expectations. Yeah, or ulterior motives. You know, that can, nothing can poison a relationship in a support group like somebody with ulterior motives because, you know, the the currency of, of support groups is honesty and trust. Yeah. And like an ulterior, ulterior motive can really, and manipulation can really kind of poison that, the well. Yeah, yeah, completely. So actually in my, when I was dating, in my inner circle, I had no speaking to single men, um, other than program or work related content. And how was that? It's been going okay. I mean, it's kind of sad. I had to kind of, waver off from some friendships and I think some of my guy friends are disappointed but overall I think it was for the better of program and just being in better and integrity um, also I realized that it, it made me look at my behavior and you know I don't really flirt with men as much as I used to anymore by far or and certainly have knocked the intrigue off but um, it does keep the focus on you know what a marriage or a long-term relationship should look like, you know, that the number one person that should be special in your life is your romantic partner. Whereas before in the past, I used to be pretty haphazard about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hit me with another fear. Um, I fear my cat Sam is getting old. I know that's a small thing, but my cat is very special to me because he's... He's 12 years old. He's been with me since post-college through... Did you name your cat after yourself? No, my my, my cat's name came first. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> um, well, my... This I, interview is over if you named your cat after yourself. <laughs> no, is... no I, I have a different birth name. Than Sam? Yeah. And so, oh. yeah, I don't, uh, I have a totally different birth name. I didn't know that. Yeah. Legally, it's something else. And okay. actually, I am, I actually filed it for, um, to have it legally changed two years ago, but I missed a court date, long story. And so I. You were flirting. <laughs> yes, with the clerk. Um, actually, in Van Nuys, I wish the clerks were nicer there, but. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I actually am refiling it for it next week. Okay. So, but I thought Sam was your uh, your real name. No, didn't know that. So yeah, I, so so me, the reason why I chose Sam originally for my cat was because of the story of Samson Delilah. Oh okay. Yeah, but he's a little tough guy, and so anyway, he's been with me through different apartments, through ex boyfriends. He's moved to Seattle, then came back. <laughs> Did he develop a heroin addiction when he was up in Seattle? Luckily, no, but I should find out if he likes, like, what's what's the band, Everclear? Uh, I think they're still, I think they came from there, but the the big one was Nirvana. 
Oh, Nirvana. Yeah, is that who you're thinking of? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I'll ask him. Right. <laughs> uh, Let's do some loves. Okay. Um, and I would be chiming in mine, but uh, I've recorded a bunch of people lately, and am truly, and I'm super tired. Um, I, I, my, the well is almost dry. But if I think of any, I'll I'll chip some of mine in. Oh no problem. Well, uh, I love traveling to Europe. Uh, I've been to a number of countries over there, England, Amsterdam, France, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Taiwan. Um, that's not in Europe, but I just love being able to explore other cultures and just see people and experience foods and museums. But you know, which is interesting, I just even love traveling just here in LA. Like I took to, so I live in LA now for 15 years. I finally took the metro today. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. The metro's great. It's clean. It runs on time. It's, yeah. Yeah, who knew? I was like thinking the same thing like LA. Oh, there's probably going to be graffiti. It's probably going to be smelly and all these things. No. It was just like the London too. I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I was actually, I brought a book with me because I was going down to a meeting um, and I just... I, I didn't even take the book out. I just was like, I closed my eyes and I just relaxed. And I was just like kind of taking in the sights and the smells. The smells exactly was just like the London tube. That was kind of crazy too. But yeah, and it was cheaper. It was like, it was It's really so cheap. Fast. It's like a buck 50 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love moments like that. I love moments where it's just something really little and you just soak it in. You know, maybe something that you... Overlook every day, and it just reminds you, wow, so much of life is can be perspective, can be just about slowing down. Yeah, and it's always like not, you know, getting off the course that sometimes it's not meant to, you know, you had this plan that something was going to happen and it went a different way. Yeah, so, um, I love Danish furniture that you made me think of it when you talked about Scandinavia. <laughs> uh, I love how. The woods that they is particularly in the fifty mid century modern the fifties mid century modern uh, furniture. I love how organic their shapes are and how minimalist they are. It's it you couldn't imagine them being any more structurally sound and visually elegant and unadorned. Yeah. Completely. You're very, you have high expertise in furniture. I have, I have what? <laughs> expertise in furniture. Well, I, the, this furniture here I made. Uh, this was the front tree in our, uh, in our yard. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's beautiful. I was just looking at the grooves right here. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so great. That was a disease that it got that killed it, that stripe that you see running, running through it. Oh. I think that is. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. That is a trip. That's awesome. Yeah, it was an old tree. It was like 60, 60 years old. And uh, that's one of my favorite favorite things. But the, the, the legs on that table, you see how they're kind of curved? Mm -hmm. That was influenced by um, Danish furniture that I, that I love. Is your house totally like jazzed up with all this? Um, there's quite a bit of furniture in there that I made, but... Um, I haven't really made anything in about two years. 
it's it's just kind of my love for it just kind of faded away and i hope i hope it comes back but um i when i'm in the mood to make furniture i just just fucking love it just love it oh that's beautiful i hope are you gonna open a shop you know, I tried to sell some stuff a while back and uh, wasn't very successful at it. But I have done a couple of things on consignment for for people. But uh, and I've had some interest from listeners since then. But because the the passion kind of went away for it, um, it uh, I've been realistic and said I, I don't want to commit to making this for you because I don't want to take your money and then not be able to come through on it. Go ahead, hit me, hit me with another love. Um. Well, I love my past and previous sponsors and program. Am I allowed to say that? Mm-hmm. Uh, even those that had taught me, well, something that was kind of bittersweet. I obviously some sponsors have passed and gone. Um. When I say past, not died, it's just like that we eventually had to part ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, which is kind of funny. I feel like this is sort of like the Darth Vader Star Wars analogy of <laughs> recovery sponsorship is often the the time when I realized that I have to move on. A lot of the sponsors that I had to, I had to move on was because the recovery wasn't working for me anymore or that some boundary was being crossed was I actually had to use a tool in which they taught me to break away from them. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. That's like an M.C. Escher painting. That is so fantastic. Really? Okay, I'm glad oh, that you're not yes. dam- damning me to hell. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I mean, my God, what? it doesn't get any more eloquent and beautiful than that. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, my um, particularly one program I had to go to to work on my control issues. Um, he had said you have to do this and this to stay, you know, to stay safe. You have to be with safe people. And sure enough, after some time, he started crossing boundaries with me, and I'm like, okay, I have to do this <laughs> to stay safe. <laughs> and and how did he take it when you said that? Did you say why, or did you just say I'm 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 moving on. I'm going to find a different uh, person to work with. He he accepted it. Yeah. He was like, okay, okay, I get it. That's awesome. Maybe. I yeah. I have no idea, but yeah, I thought that yeah. tale was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what a great... Um, I love despite it's so easy to get into a place of resentment and better less than with the traffic, heat, smog, assholes, superficial, su- superficiality. That I live somewhere as free, big, and as liberal as Los Angeles, as in California. Yeah, I love it, too. Yeah. Um, I always have to remind myself to be grateful when I see other counterparts in the in the Middle East or other parts in the world, even first world countries, like in first world cities. You know, I, I think we still have a best here, best here on the West Coast, yeah. even. Um I kind of feel like the other stuff's not that important. Okay, that's all right. Uh, I love... I think we'll probably go out on the one about y- yeah. you You love that uh, you... The very tool that your sponsor <laughs> <laughs> taught you. That's that's so great. I don't know. Have, has anyone ever told you that before? Um, they- no, but uh, I... 
I wouldn't be surprised if that happens all the time. All the time. Yeah. It's kind of a weird, bittersweet revelation I made. (laughs) It's like like someone teaches you how to fish, and then you go, you know what, i got to kick you off the fishing boat because you're being inappropriate. (laughs) But you know how to fish, so good luck to you. (laughs) Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your, uh, your life with us. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Paul, for asking me. It's, it's, it's truly humbling, and this is a really great experience. I appreciate it. Many, 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 many thanks to, uh, to Sam for coming and uh, sharing all that, that stuff with us. Um, you know, I thought as I was editing that episode together um, that, uh, you know, we were talking about, you know, kind of the typical what males do and what females do, and I always get a little anxious when I listen back to that, and there's generalizations, but because I know a lot of our our listeners, uh, their gender doesn't fall into a neat category, and uh, I kind of wish I would have, you know, said that because I don't I don't like our listeners who, um, who don't fit into easily defined boxes to feel like we're discounting their experience or saying, um, and you know what I'm saying. What, basically, what I'm doing is apology number 173. Check your textbooks. You'll you'll find out what it what it is. But um, it it always bums me out when somebody hears an episode of the podcast and it makes them feel more alone, which does happen occasionally. And uh, maybe that's just the people pleaser in me trying to make sure that everybody's okay. But anyway, there you have it. Um, what do I want to tell you about? I think I've, I've promoted it already, but if you're going to be in the Toronto area on, uh, November 15th, I believe it's, that's, that's a Friday. Um, yes, uh, I'm going to be a part of the Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival and I'll be interviewing Clint Malarchuk. Um, that, uh, is that a Friday night or a Saturday night? That's a Saturday night. Sweet mother of God, Paul, get the fucking information in front of you. Um, but if you go to rendezvouswithmadness.com, you can you can find out all the information. You can buy tickets online, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Really looking forward to it. Let us get to some. You know what? Before we do that, I want to run some some ideas past past you guys because you're you have a good. You clearly you listen to the show. You have good taste. I am one of the things I want to do in the future is write a book about my experiences, what I've learned doing the podcast, share some of your experiences, and I'm looking for a book title. And you know, uh, there's a couple we've tossed around. Uh, Crying, Is Your Soul Blowing a Load? Maybe. That'd look pretty sweet in an airport on a shelf. How about this one? Pain is just your heart sprouting pubes. Service is humility, French kissing, compassion. That one might be a little ethereal. Faith is is patience and honesty locked in a 69. I think that one's got legs. <laughs> and they're both in the air. Uh, how about this one? When your ego has a heart on, your soul gets blue-balled. That one's nice. I think that might especially do well in the uh, conservative Christian community. Uh, surrender is meeting fear and not acting like a whore. Again, I think that one might do good. That one, that one might be welcomed with open arms at the Vatican. 
Compassion is love's least creepy uncle. I'm not sure where that one will. I think the bowling alleys are going to take to that one. Uh, people without demons are boring or liars. I think that's a t-shirt, actually. Um, and this one, I think this might be, because this describes me to a fucking T. Arrogance is fear awkwardly trying to break dance. There you have it. Those are my Those are my potential book titles. I might have read those already on the podcast, in which case, if you're judging me, go fuck yourself. Uh, this is an email I want to read from, oh, I want to also mention, if you choose to support the show in any way possible, there's a couple of days we can, ways that you can do it. You can support us financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and making a one-time PayPal donation, or my very favorite in the whole wide world, becoming a monthly uh, donor for as little as five bucks a month. Super easy to set up. Um, and it means the world to me. You can also shop at Amazon through our search portal, and that way they give us a couple of nickels. doesn't cost you anything. Um, and you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating, writing something nice, or just spreading the word through social media. Okay, this is an email that I got from uh, Amy from Seattle, and she writes, um, I'm 37 and I've struggled with mental issues my entire life, but it wasn't until five years ago that I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I put diagnosed in quotes because the doctor didn't intend to tell me and it was an accident that a nurse let it slip. I had crashed hard and ended up in the hospital. Learning the diagnosis and realizing that my issues were all covered under one umbrella was what saved my life. Previously, I'd felt hopeless and that I believed I was a big mosaic of problems and that once one issue was solved, another had to be tackled from the beginning. I thought it would never end. I've heard you mention this on the show before, that diagnosis, diagnosis is, can be so helpful. However, I had felt before as though some doctors are trying not to give diagnoses in the belief that people with abuse, people will abuse them in some way. This is bullshit. Before my visit to that hospital, I'd been to a number of therapists and psychologists and none of them offered any answers that I could work with until I accidentally learned of my disorder. That knowledge saved my life. Since then, I've taken control of my life and have blossomed in ways I never thought possible. Immediately following the diagnosis, I attended DBT classes. D, that's a dialectical behavior therapy. Um, I think that's what it stands for. Um, I attended DBT classes accompanied by individual sessions and antidepressants for a year and then eventually went out on my own. For the past three years or so, I've been managing my life on my own without group sessions or therapy, and I'm off antidepressants as well. If I needed any of it, I would definitely take those steps again. But the skills I learned in DBT have proven to be enough for me to live life and handle whatever comes my way. I still absolutely struggle with all of the same thoughts and extreme emotions, as well as black and white thinking and impulsiveness as I always have, but the power of knowing has made all the difference. Now I can detach from all that confusion and see myself as the person underneath it and go from there. I hope my message reaches you well, and I hope that it serves as confirmation that diagnoses can be a good thing. I also hope that someone who needs to hear this will hear it and keep searching for their answers 
until they find relief. My answers didn't come until 15 plus years into my search. That's a lot of years of talking myself out of major self-destruction based sometimes on as little as looking forward to a cup of coffee. Keep going because even once you get that diagnosis, you still have to find your own answers. Nobody can tell you what's right for you. Nobody on earth has that knowledge but you. That, uh, I just love getting emails like that. I just fucking love it, especially with a disorder as burdensome as borderline personality disorder. And what I love about Amy is that she didn't use it to excuse your behavior. She used it as a platform to take responsibility for it because she could see that there was a path to getting better. And that is just fucking high fives all around. God, do I love that. I'm high fiving to Seattle right now. You can't see it, but I, my, I'm doing that stretchy arm thing. And I, honest to God, don't know how do you pronounce diagnoses? Or is it diagnoses? Yeah, it's diagnoses. Sweet mother of God, I went to college for five fucking years. This is an awful moment. I'm also very tired tonight. Um, so, uh, who? Enjoy that. <laughs> I don't know what that was. This is filled out. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Whaler. And uh, he writes, one day I was struggling with everything and wanted to die. Also known as Wednesday. Uh, the stress was too much. Feeling like I am letting everyone down. But I promised my wife I wouldn't do anything stupid. So I went to the hospital. There I sat on this bed in a hallway in New England with a nurse watching me and a cop there as a guard. He looks at me in my Washington Capitals hat and says, really? A Caps fan? Like I needed that right now. He asked if I was from Washington, which I am not, born New Englander. Then he asked why I'm a Caps fan. And my reply was, well, I grew up a Whalers fan. And before I could finish the sentence, he smiled and said, now I like you. That was the first time I smiled in a few days. So there I sat, red eyes from crying, tears dried on my face, talking about the Hartford Whalers in an ER with the police officer who didn't ask about my problem, nor did he care. He was just happy to find a fellow Whaler fan as I was. I have since gotten help and I'm on the road to recovery. Go Caps. Uh, those are hockey teams, by the way. And... uh a whaler, I hate to burst your bubble, but the Caps will never win a Stanley Cup until they get rid of Alexander Ovechkin. There, I said it. And you don't like it, go fuck yourself. He's overpaid and he doesn't play defense. Wow. Paul, that's not very kind. Well, serving up a hot dish of truth here. This is from a rarely taken survey. Uh, the uh, violation of a young male by an older female this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Fubar Rhubarb, and he is, let's see how old he is, he is, uh, he is transgender, uh, male to female, uh, gay, in his 30s, and he writes, my older sister sexually abused me on many occasions from about the age of six until about the age of 11. She is nine years older than me. I am the youngest of five children and her being the next youngest, my sister would often be the one looking after me. The abuse took place mostly at home once uh, when we were on a family holiday in Spain. In the beginning, she would get me to give her massages. This gradually escalated to more uh, intimate touching 
her getting me to masturbate her, perform oral sex on her, and having full sex on at least one occasion that I can remember. Um, I've told a handful of close friends and most of my girlfriends. I finally started seeing a counselor late last year, and it was the first thing I told her. She was legally uh, obliged or obligated to report it to child protection. I then gave a detailed statement to two social workers as part of the investigation. I've also been seeing a psychiatrist this year who I've told about it. My parents are naturists, and we were very open uh, that I believe that term is interchangeable with nudists. Um, my parents are naturists and were very, either that or they loved looking at birds while they were flying around and everyone was naked uh, and were very open about sex and I was exposed to adult sexuality from a very young age so I knew plenty about it and was never told it was dirty or anything like that. I did know that it wasn't normal for me and my sister to be doing these things and she told me that we had to keep it a secret which I did. It was only later in my teens that I fully realized just how abnormal it was and that I had been sexually abused. It has affected me deeply. I am hypervigilant. I suffer from depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. I find it very difficult to communicate with people. I have trouble maintaining eye contact. I get tongue-tied and feel embarrassed and ashamed. I am lucky to have many friends, but I often can't face them and will dodge calls and keep myself isolated for long periods. I think about the abuse often, feeling paralyzed with anger and frustration and wishing it hadn't happened and that I could have a normal life instead of being a fucked up mess. I often wish I was dead. I have self-harmed, sometimes by cutting, but mostly by hitting my head against walls. I have heavily used drugs and alcohol. I am currently struggling with heroin and crack habits. I know I am doing myself harm, but the drugs make the rotten thoughts and feelings bearable and allow me to function. Without these coping strategies, I fear I will kill myself. I feel extremely sad and angry at how fucking unfair this is. I am overcome with shame. I feel disgusting. I want to cry and scream and smash things, but I just tense up like a frightened animal, frozen and effectual. It did a lot of damage. I am only now in my early 30s beginning to come to terms with this shit properly and move forward. I have talked to my sister about what happened and found out that she was herself sexually abused by our brother who sexually assaulted our other sister as well, which makes what she did to me slightly less hard to understand. I no longer hate her for what she did. We grew up in a highly sexualized environment with parents who were emotionally volatile, inconsistent, and were constantly giving us mixed messages. It's just a big icky mess. Um, wow. Thank you so much for that. And I hope that anybody who has been the victim um, of sexual, um, who has been sexually violated, um, understands that all of the stuff that was just described um, is textbook, the feelings. And that there can be help for it. It's not it's not a death sentence. Recovery is different or difficult, but it's it is possible. And um I used to blame myself for all of those feelings that I had, you know, difficulty having eye contact and all this all the stuff that uh was listed and it uh I now know that that's that's not a personal failing. Those are the ripples from from what happens. So, I'm sorry that you had to go that go through that. And thank you for sharing that. 
This is a... Where are the rest of my surveys? Oh, okay. We have some more struggle in the sentences. I thought this was the, the, the pile from earlier. Uh, this is a struggle in the sentence, but I think it should have been put in as an awfulsome moment. Um, this is filled out by Will. And he writes, I went out with a group of friends to shoot guns and drink beer on my friend's property. There was a moment when I wanted to shoot myself. I stopped myself because I didn't want to inconvenience my friends. That is awfulsome. Sending you a hug, Will. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by... Oh, no, this is a struggle in a sentence that I also thought could have been an awfulsome moment. And this is filled out by L. And uh, she writes, um, the first time I called a wellness center to make an appointment, I was nervous and shaking, walking back and forth, speaking in hushed tones. They asked me some basic questions and then caught me by surprise when I admitted to suicidal ideation. What method of suicide do you envision in your fantasies? It was so casual and caught me completely off guard. Having to say, oh, you know, hanging myself in the bathroom or shooting myself in the head was one of the most surreal and uncomfortable experiences of my life. I still can't believe they asked me that. I felt deeply ashamed and disgusted by my own thoughts, and my depression felt trivialized. Uh, I think you should have said, definitely by gun, but only after I take down pushy people who ask too many questions. Just my thought. I hope you are in all seriousness. Seriousness, though, I hope you're uh, you're in a better place now than uh, you were in in that moment. Sometimes people are just so fucking. I know because they have a nine to five job and they deal with it all day long. But you know, if you can't muster a compassionate tone and choose the right phrasing for somebody who's in a crisis, find another fucking job. I'm so tired of reading these surveys, you know, especially people who are in psychiatric ERs and they're just handled with no compassion. Uh, and I'm also, my, my heart is filled when I read about somebody that had a positive experience where they felt nurtured and in a psych ER and they felt like the nurses and the doctors cared about them. But man... Uh, it's a, it's a real pet peeve of mine when I go in and somebody just doesn't give a fucking shit about their job. Find another fucking job. Find another fucking job. I don't care what you're doing. You know, if you're if you're serving the public, ugh, ugh, ugh. This is. I don't know why that makes me so angry, but it does. Like when I get a, you know, a waiter or a waitress is just like, like I'm inconveniencing them. It's like, uh, oh, it, it's making my blood boil right now thinking about it. I'm going to have to talk to, I'm going to have to talk to somebody in my support groups and find out what is underneath this. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Cat Butt. And uh, she is straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. 
Uh, my mom used to barge into my room when I was getting dressed so she could make disparaging remarks about my body. Eventually, I started locking the door, which just led to the doorknob being removed. I was taught at a very young age that if I wasn't thin and pretty, that society would reject me. My period started at a very young age, and I remember hiding all my bloody underwear in a shoebox under my bed. I was too afraid to tell my mom. She eventually found the shoebox and decided to tell me while I was playing in the backyard. I also remember some neighborhood boys forcing me to sit in a tent while they took turns showing me their penises. I also I was also harassed by an 8th grade science teacher who would award the pretty girls with good grades and the ugly ones with bad grades. I was in the bad grade category. Um, she's also been emotionally abused. I was bullied a lot in junior high for being an ugly, acne-faced kid with frizzy hair. I remember telling my parents that I didn't want to go to school and being told that the reason I get bullied is because I'm an easy target. I started wearing makeup to try and cover my acne, which only led to my mother telling me I looked like a whore. Needless to say, I struggled with anxiety, depression, and ADHD. I was unable to concentrate in school, which led to bad grades, which led to more emotional abuse at home. Time and time again, I was told I was stupid and I would be lucky to ever amount to anything in life. If I gained weight, I was punished and even asked to eat Christmas dinner in the other room away from my family. I was also picked on for being too sensitive and quiet. I wish I could say that I overcame all of this and I'm now a successful, well-adjusted adult with a great career. I've made quite a bit of progress, though. After being in quite a few abusive relationships, I eventually met a very kind, decent, and loving man. I also have a very strong network of friends. As for the career, not so much. Um, by the way, uh, what your mom uh, did, the, that, that is, uh, qualifies as sexual abuse, um, not allowing a child to have autonomy over their body and violating their privacy. That is absolutely uh, sexual abuse. And uh, I think those boys forcing you to uh, go into the tent and them doing that, uh, that's also abusive. Um, I don't know why I felt the need to qualify that. You know, I think because there was an, uh, an article somebody wrote on BuzzFeed, and this, this woman wrote an article about her stepfather being a peeping Tom on her and how people were telling her that it wasn't sexual abuse, and it just fucking enraged me. Um, it's every bit. And, and the mental health professionals that she went to see did not tell her that it wasn't sexual abuse. They told her it absolutely was. But her mom kept telling her to get over it and to forgive her stepfather. And there you have, you know, that second wound coming in, that the person minimizing it, who should be protecting them, you know, who should have told that fucking guy to move, that stepfather to move out of the fucking house and get help um, instead of, blaming her daughter for not uh, forgiving you know don't ever fucking tell somebody to forgive somebody else that is up to them when and how they will forgive somebody else you want to love them hold them tell you you love them help them feel safe help protect them wow i'm 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 angry i started the podcast i wasn't that that angry tonight, but these you know, between people that don't like their jobs and uh, people that deny covert sexual abuse. Whew. Uh, 
any positive experiences with your abusers? My relationship with my parents is very different from the one I had with them growing up. They're more accepting and happy to see me in a healthy, supportive marriage. They don't even give me a hard time for not having a job. They tell me things like, you'll find a job, it'll work out. I'm not angry with my parents, but sometimes I have to question where the love and support was when I needed it most. Well, at least they've come around, and that is the most important thing, you know. Um, and I think you should forgive them. <laughs> Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about engaging in really rough sex with a guy in my social circle. I imagine him fucking me until it hurts, smashing furniture in the process, and leaving. I hope it's cheap IKEA furniture. Please, for the love of God, do not break heirloom furniture because that I will find you and I will prosecute, especially if it's mid-century modern uh, and Danish. I will get Interpol on it if you are smashing mid-century modern Danish. And if it's Brazilian rosewood, I will push for the death penalty. Continuing, I think my mind goes here because the guy is the polar opposite of my husband. I would never act on this, but sometimes the thoughts are overwhelming. Darkest secrets. I tried to deal with the overwhelming thoughts mentioned above by trying to get to know the guy better. I thought maybe if I see him as a person, then the intrusive thoughts will not be so overwhelming. I had no intention of having a sexual relationship with him. Unfortunately, this approach didn't work and only left me feeling more confused, isolated, and empty. I really was just hoping he would say something to me like, I'm glad you're my friend. I'm glad you exist. Pathetic, right? I have a loving and supportive husband, awesome friends who accept me warts and all, and I'm still seeking approval from someone who doesn't give a shit. What the fuck? Well, I... I you know, she writes, I have had issues with love addiction in the past. Sex and love addiction is a really common thing in the wake of uh, childhood sexual trauma. Um, it's really common. Anyway, uh, for a little while, I deluded myself into thinking this one was different because sex wasn't involved. I was wrong. I was still feeding my addiction by going out of my way to be around him. He never initiated a conversation or showed signs of wanting to be my friend. I eventually had to stop attending events where I knew he would be hanging out, even if it meant staying home and not seeing friends for a weekend. I want to make it clear that I don't blame this person. I don't believe he's trying to hurt me or wants to hurt me. I'm just emotionally scarred and fucked up. Once I did cut off contact, I had to take time to really sit with myself and allow myself to feel all the feelings. After some in introspection, I came to realize that my addiction to this guy was not about him, but my fear of not mattering, not being heard, isolation, and abandonment. Wow. Man, did you hit that on the fucking head. Um... In my opinion. Sometimes I'm afraid you guys are going to think I'm Mr. Pompous Soapbox thinks he's a therapist. Um, what would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish you saw me as a person and not just an extension of yourself. I wish you had encouraged me to pursue my interests rather than telling me my interests were stupid. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to eventually end up in a career that allows me to help others and add something positive to the world. I hope to become stronger and more effective at managing my overwhelming emotions. I hope to form an even stronger connection to my husband and friends. Um, how do you feel after writing this stuff down? Tired, but a little relieved. I also realized that I didn't have the best upbringing. Not as bad as some, but I think it's okay for me to be a little more forgiving of myself for not having it all together. What would you like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not crazy or stupid for the thoughts you have. Even when they are confusing and overwhelming, you have value. Do not ever let anyone make you feel less than. 
Love that survey. Thank you for that. This is an awful moment, and this was filled out by um, a woman who calls herself uh, Not Ramona Flowers. <laughs> it's an interesting name. Um, in college, I developed a friendship with a guy after being rejected when he got a girlfriend. After three years, in what was supposed to be my final year, after turning down a surprise offer from his on-and-off girlfriend for a threesome, when they broke up, uh, I kissed him on the neck to express my frustration and confusion. It was the only time I've ever initiated anything sexual with anyone, and I enjoyed it even though I wanted to apologize for doing it and often felt guilty about it. Three years after that, now single, he invited me over to meet his new friends and do ecstasy and really strong weed. He asked me to lie beside him in a cuddle and then had his friends friend explain to me that he was raped as a child by a close family friend. He called himself a monster with a conscience for having rape fantasies. The fact that he was sharing this after all this time with me really felt wonderful, but what I immediately thought was that I must be a worse monster and best the best slash worst part was the ecstasy was finally starting to kick in, so I had to fight the urge to touch him inappropriately while trying to comfort him physically at the same time and wanting to feel something but feeling emotionally numb from the weed. Best night of my life. You cannot make this shit up. This is a... Uh, an awful moment. I guess it fits in that, but it just made me chuckle. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself 50-foot queenie, and she writes, um, uh, her awful moment is realizing that my only party trick is to be able to recite the podcast theme verbatim. Uh, this is an awful moment shared by a woman who calls herself angel fuck. You always know it's going to be a good survey when they have fuck or fuckface or cunt or asshole in the name. Uh, she writes, As a child, I took piano lessons. I hated them. At home, we had a beautiful baby grand piano. The piano was in a room nobody was allowed in. It had thick rose-colored carpet on the floor. If you stepped on it, on it, footprints would be left behind. Every single week, I would get in trouble by my piano teacher for not practicing enough at home. Then I would go home and would get a beating because I got in trouble from the piano teacher for not practicing. I couldn't practice because I wasn't allowed in the room. Due to my lack of practicing, I wasn't allowed to perform in the recital. When my mother found out, she beat the shit out of me, including breaking my arm. That was the end of my piano lessons. You cannot make this shit up and sending you a hug hopefully your arm has healed um this is filled out by a guy who calls himself k it's an awful or a happy moment he writes uh i was spending days having crying fits feeling crazy because i deleted my ex from all social networking and getting rid of old letters then to find while I was doing this, she emailed me to apologize for how we handled things when we split and to give me some closure. Going from a maybe one day to a definite nope, 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 never again isn't necessarily happy, but having that doubt and hope crushed felt so liberating. It's like when you're on a roller coaster and you fucking hate it, then the ride is over and you can go sit and eat funnel cake. Now is my funnel cake time. Not intended to be dirty. Kind of sounds dirty though. What what would a funnel cake be? What would that be? Would that That would be when somebody shits on your chest but they have a super wrinkly asshole. 
and and a, a churro would be if it's done by a stripper with a really wrinkly starfish shaped asshole whose stripping name was cinnamon i have probably lost a third of my listeners with today's episode um this is i'm going to end on this one this is a happy moment and this was uh filled out by a guy who calls himself malignant optimism and uh, his happy moment is, for years I had this strange habit of compulsively giving the middle finger to no one when I was alone. I would feel this sudden sense of rage and go straight to the bird, an unhealthy coping mechanism, I'm sure. It wasn't until I started going to therapy last year that I realized I did that when I would have moments of disappointment in myself, usually for minor things. At some point a few months ago, I found this habit becoming much more conscious. The middle finger turned turned into me actually saying to myself out loud or under my breath one or two things. I fucking hate you or I want to fucking destroy you. This tendency concerned me, but I recognize it as progress. Rather than occasional moments of repressed rage, I was starting to see self-hatred and perfectionism unfold right in front of me. Today I heard myself say something different. Just a good old-fashioned fuck you. It's the tiny victories in life where happiness can be found, and this one made me smile. How do we not end on that? How do we not end on a guy who is celebrating that he is decreasing his self-hatred to a simple fuck you? God, do I love you guys. God, do I love you guys. I I can't imagine what the podcast would be like if we had never incorporated the surveys into them. It just... It just, uh, I'm at a loss for words. I just love it so much. I love you guys sharing your inner lives with me. And you're crazy because it makes me feel so much less alone. So much less alone. Oh, thank you so much. And I hope if you've, if you've stuck through the 138 minutes we're at, um, and thank you those of you who have helped me become more confident in putting the longer episodes out because it's really hard sometimes to weed out things that I feel compelled to to read. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, I hope if you're out there after listening uh, to this episode, you know that you're you're not alone and that there's help if you're if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and say, please help me. I can't I can't do this. I'm, I, I, I don't know what to do. Um, and uh, thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody fucked up I know in some is weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.